If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John's Gospel. In our text this morning is the very last chapter, John chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the pew back in front of you. I invite you to grab one of those and read along with me quietly as I read aloud John chapter 21. These are the words of God. And this, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? 
When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we do thank you for your word this morning. It's by your word that we've come to know you. Indeed, we come and we gather in this place to worship you with confidence that we can do such a thing because you've revealed yourself to us and because you have revealed us to us the wonderful good news that by faith in your son, we've been reconciled to you, that we can come and approach you in confidence that you will receive our praise, you will receive our prayers, because of our faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We also come, Lord, this morning because we are a people who continually need your word. We need continually to hear your voice, and to hear your voice, we turn to your word, that we might grow in our faith, that our faith may not fail or fall away, but that it would grow. As a seed grows in the ground, that it would grow up and continue to increase in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that that faith in him would produce holiness in our lives by the power of your spirit. So we pray now, Lord, that that would happen. As we look to your word, as we look to this last chapter in John, we pray that you would use it for the edification of your people, that it would grow us up in faith and love and unity together in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been over two years now, over two years, that we've been in the Gospel of John. Some of you say, how has it been that long? It feels like this series has maybe been two months at most. It's just flown by so fast. No, it's been over two years, and finally we've come to the end. Some of you are saying, yes, yes, now we are finally at the end. Two years, I thought it was five. Well, we're here. We're at the end. And for those of you who were here last week, you'll remember that In chapter 20, when we got to the end of chapter 20, John ends with his purpose statement, his reason for for writing the book, that statement that we've read over and over again in this series. He stated his purpose that we might believe, his readers might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And maybe you thought last week, well, this seems like an appropriate end to the gospel. It seems like John is wrapping up here. But John continues on. And I think probably the best way for us to look at and think about chapter 21 is to think of it as an epilogue to the gospel. You'll remember, maybe you will remember, it was two years ago after all, but when we started John, what did John start with? Well, he started with a sort of prologue. And those first verses in the first chapter serve as a prologue to give some important backstory 
to the gospel so we have a better understanding of who this man Jesus Christ is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. That was very important for his readers to understand before he started the story of Jesus in his ministry, his earthly ministry. So just like John began with the prologue, giving us the important backstory to the gospel, so now he finishes his gospel with an epilogue. And it's a kind of, we could call it a, um, an epilogue that ties up some loose ends. So that's kind of what my sermon is going to be. This sermon is going to kind of be an epilogue to the series in John. Now, the most important um, end that John ties up here in this last chapter is, is uh, the restoration of Peter. The Lord's restoration of the disciple who had denied him the night of his arrest and trial. And around that conversation between Peter and Jesus, we have the occasion that led to that conversation, namely the disciples going out and fishing and Jesus appearing to them on the shore. And then we have the conversation and then John's commentary on something that Jesus tells Peter at the end. So actually, if you you zoom out and you look at the chapter as a whole, we have three distinct scenes that kind of coalesce together. First, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples for the third time. Then we have Jesus directly addressing Peter and Jesus' conversation with Peter. And then finally, we have this scene where Peter asks the Lord about John and then Jesus' response to that. So kind of three scenes, it'd be three great uh, sections for three different sermons, but we're going to put all those three sermons into one today. I know that makes you a little nervous. It's okay. We'll go quickly. So first, let's look at Jesus and the disciples. The first scene is the disciples go out fishing. Look at verse one. After this, Jesus reveals himself again to the disciples by the sea of, or revealed, sorry. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That was the Sea of Galilee. And John says he reveals himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking... Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. John doesn't tell us how much time had passed since the disciples had last seen the Lord when he had showed his hands and his side to Thomas. We know that was the last time that he had seen them. He had been with them because John tells us this is the third time that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. But we don't know how long, how, how much time um, went by in between them seeing Jesus. It, it could have been a few days. It could have been a few weeks. But either way, what we need to keep in mind, and I mentioned this last week, was that after the resurrection, they weren't always with Jesus. He didn't stay with them like he he stayed with them before. He appeared and he revealed himself to them when he chose to, but he wasn't simply available for them to just follow around and be with like he was before his death. So things, things were different. 
Thus far, he had told them he was ascending to the Father and that they would be his witnesses. They would declare the forgiveness of sins. But what all of that meant was yet to be seen. And you can imagine that they may have felt at this point a little bit lost, maybe a little bit like they were in limbo. Jesus had yet to give them any specific instructions except that they were to go to Galilee and that he would meet them there. And we know that they're in Galilee because they're fishing in the Sea of Galilee. So they're in Galilee. They did that. And they're waiting for him to meet them there. So what are we to think about Peter going fishing with some of his other disciples? Peter, I love how Peter just announce, announces, you can just, you kind of picture them all sitting around, twiddling their thumbs, like waiting for Jesus. What do we do next? Just lost. And Peter just stands up and goes, you know what? I'm going fishing, guys. Forget this. We're doing nothing here. I'm going fishing. And a bunch of them say, yeah, we'll go with you. So what, are, what should we think about that? There have been commentators, there have been preachers who have tried to make a point of this, that, you know, Peter was going back to his old way of life. He was leaving the pursuit of preaching the gospel and making disciples of men. Well, that might have been the case, but I'm not sure that it was. You know, John doesn't tell us what was in Peter's mind. And it's likely that as they waited for further instruction from the Lord, they just simply decided that it couldn't hurt to catch some fish. You know, they did have to eat after all, right? And for Peter, Andrew, James, John, for a bunch of them, fishing had been their primary source of income. It was what they did before they met Jesus. So these men, they go out on their boat and they go into the Sea of Galilee for a night of fishing. Apparently that was when it was a good time to catch fish. But, you know, to their disappointment, what happens is they end up catching nothing. And we need to keep in mind as we read the story that this is what Peter and these men know the best. And there are few things quite as humbling to a fisherman than to go out for hours and have nothing to show for it. And I can tell you from experience, and, you know, I don't, I don't like to talk about fishing that often, if you know me. Occasionally, I'll slip it in a sermon here or there, but I think I exercise quite a bit of self-control when it comes to my hobby of fishing, how much I talk about it. But look, this is, it's right in the text, and you know, I do have some experience. And while it's very humbling not to catch anything, it's even more annoying for a fisherman to have a spectator there when you're catching nothing call out and say, how many have you caught? And then when you tell them nothing, a little bit under your breath, because you're annoyed that they asked, hear, you hear them respond, well, have you tried this? Have you tried using worms? No, I haven't tried using worms. Am I a barbarian? What do I look like? Or have you tried that spot over there? Maybe you should try over there. Did you try under that log? Well, this is exactly what happens. They go out all night. They catch nothing. And then a spectator from the shore calls out and asks them if they've caught anything. And they, of course, say no. And then he proceeds to give them his expert advice. Why don't you try on the other side of the boat? And to their surprise, when they do, they get so many fish in the net, they can't actually bring it into their boat. 
And I have to say, if I were there, I would have felt, at this point, a mix of excitement and irritation. Excitement about all the fish we just caught, and a little irritation that the spectator was right, and my success with catching all these fish was due to him, and not my own knowledge, and not my own expertise. But it's at this point, when the net is so full that they can't bring it in, that John, he's the smart one, by the way. If you pay attention to the Gospels, he's always the one that catches on very early. John catches on right away what's happening. John knows, look, the stranger, this is no just ordinary stranger. The net is full of fish. You know, and it's very likely that John, by the way, is remembering another time when almost the exact same thing happens. A few years earlier, about three years earlier, in fact, it was the first time they met Jesus. They had toiled all night and come in with no fish. And then Jesus bid them to go back out and lower their nets, and suddenly their nets were full of fish. That's in Luke 5. And so John, putting the pieces together, excitedly exclaims to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, you know, out of eagerness, the, the way Peter is, out of eagerness to see the Lord, he jumps ship, and he swims to shore and to let the other guys, you know, make their way back on their own, figure out a way to get all these fish back to shore. But you see, there's, there's something important in all of this. There's something important in, in how it all happened that I want you to notice. It, it was actually, you know, I was kind of making a joke, but it was a humbling experience. It was a humbling experience for Peter, especially, and these men, and it was so by design. You know, here, here's Peter back at doing what he knows, and he's failing miserably. All of his knowledge, all of his experience in fishing couldn't produce a single fish. And then the Lord shows up, and by the Lord's aid, at the Lord's command, to lower down their nets on the other side of the boat, they have more fish than they can haul in with the net. And this, you see, is already the beginning of Peter's restoration. It's already happening here. It was, it was Peter's pride, actually, that went before his fall. And that pride would need to be replaced with utter dependence upon the Lord. And this is a lesson for Peter in that. And I don't think it's too much to say that in this post-resurrection miracle, Jesus was teaching all of his disciples a lesson. That as they followed his instruction in the coming years, that he would make their efforts abundantly fruitful. They would, of course, not be catching fish, but making disciples as he was going to call them to. But they had to learn this lesson. Apart from him, they would toil to no avail, but with him and by his power, they would reap a harvest beyond anything that they thought possible. Now, John tells us when you read, go on in the story, he tells us when they got to the shore and Peter hauled the net up from the boat. It's interesting that Peter is the one that hauls the net up. It makes me think that when they got up there and Jesus said, why don't you bring up some of those fish? The other guys were like, Peter, you're the one who jumped ship and swam to Jesus and made us row or sail or whatever it was back to shore alone. How about you go get those fish? And Peter himself must have been a strong man because he hauls up this net full of large fish. John says 153 of them. Now, it's interesting that from the fourth century on, there have been all these theories, crazy theories of the significance of that number, 153. Many of these theories include an elaborate mixture of mathematics, 
geometry in allegorical interpretation as to why it was the number was 153. But I think most likely the significance in the number 153 is that that's how many fish they caught. And it was so, it was so many that one of them probably said, I can't believe, we've never caught this many in one go, in one net, in one casting of the net, this many fish. Dude, we gotta count them. And somebody counted them. And that's how John knew there were 153 fish because they were so impressed at how many there were that they counted them and then John recorded it for us. And now what happens on top of all of this, on top of the Lord providing this harvest of fish for them, when they get to the shore, this is really sweet and it's so easy to miss. It's right there, right in front of us. Jesus serves them breakfast. There's a fire going already. John tells us Jesus already had fish laid out for them, already cooked for them. And think about this. Think about why this matters. Here's the resurrected Lord Jesus providing for his disciples and serving them. Look at verse 13. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. What this means is even in his resurrected state, even after his humiliation was complete, even after he gave his life as a ransom for them and then rose from the grave and is glorified, he is still putting himself in the place of a servant. And he is, do, he is doing so as an example for them so that they might do the same when they lead his church. Remember what he said to them in John 13, when he washed their feet, he said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It was all a wonderful illustration and affirmation to his disciples. Their Lord was risen and things were not the same as they were before. Soon he would be ascended to the Father, yet he would continue to provide for their every need and his power would continue to be displayed in their lives lives as they lived in dependence upon him. Every individual who would hear their testimony and confess Christ as a result. Listen, every new disciple who would go through the, who they would put through the waters of baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and declare their sins have been forgiven, they would be able to say, the Lord has done it and he's done it again. He's caused our obedience to his instructions to bear fruit. He gave us the instructions to make disciples. And as we toiled, he produced the fruit. It was like when he said, cast the net on the other side of the boat. All we did was cast the net and suddenly the net was full. And every meal that they ate from then on, every single meal that they ate from then on, they'd be able to say, we received this this food from our Lord's hand. He's provided for us yet again. Just as he served us on the shores of Galilee after his resurrection, so he continues to provide for our every need. So too for all disciples of Christ today, we're reminded of this truth, that though the Lord is risen and ascended, he is not absent. He's not absent from his people. His enabling and sustaining grace is at work in our lives, in the lives of all who trust in him. And as we walk in obedience to his commands, 
to his instruction, we can be confident that he will bless the work of our hands and he'll cause it to bear fruit. Even when we follow his instruction and his word that doesn't seem to make sense to us in that moment, or is contrary to what the world is saying, we look to his word and we say, we're gonna obey and we walk by faith. And part of that walking by faith is trusting that when we obey his instructions and his commands, he will cause that obedience to bear fruit. And likewise, every good gift that we receive, we recognize comes from his hands. It's a lesson in utter dependence upon the Lord, right? It's as he said to his disciples in John 15, five, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But even fishing, Lord? Yes, even fishing. Even when you go out fishing and you catch fish to provide for your family or just for fun, when you catch it, you can say, this has been given to me by the hand of the Lord. This has been given to me by the hand of the Lord. And when you walk in obedience to his instructions and his commands and there's fruit and you see that fruit, you can say, this has come to us by the hand of the Lord. He's provided. Our risen Lord Jesus has provided. He is serving us still with good and precious gifts. Now then, we come to Peter. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asks Peter essentially the same question three times here. Now, you might be aware of the fact that there are, there are two Greek terms here that are translated. They're both translated love in our, our English translation. Jesus uses one, and then Peter answers with the other. But John uses those two terms, agape and phileo. He uses those two terms interchangeably in his gospel. He doesn't make a distinction between those two terms. So, to, to some of your disappointment, I don't think we should make too much of that. But I do think we should pay attention to the question that Jesus is asking and the fact that he asks him three times. The question is, do you love me? And the first time Jesus asked Peter, he says, do you love me more than these? Now that could mean a couple different things. That could mean, because it's, just as it's ambiguous in English, it's ambiguous in Greek. It could mean, he could be saying, do you love me more than these things? Whatever was lying around there, perhaps the, the fish, the nets, the boat. In other words, do you love me more than fishing? Do you love me more than this, ocu than this occupation? Or just do you love me more than worldly goods? Or Jesus could have meant, do you love me more than you love these men that are standing around here, the, the, the other disciples? Neither of those seem to really fit with the story, especially with what we've seen from Peter. 
It's not like in this gospel, Peter has showed himself to, to love fishing or stuff more than he loves Jesus. And it's, it seems odd that Jesus would pit Peter's love, against, love for him against his love for the other disciples. He, could Jesus put those two together. He did say to them, as I love you, you are also are to love one another. So neither of those options seem like the right reading of the text. But there's a third option. It's possible Jesus was saying, Peter, do you love me more than these men do? Do you love me, Peter, more than these men love me? Now, why would Jesus put the question to Peter like that? Well, maybe it was because that was essentially what Peter had boasted the night that the Lord was arrested. Look at John 13 again with me, John 13, 36 through 38. We're going to look at these verses a couple times. But look, Simon Peter said to him, this is, of course, before the crucifixion on the night when he was betrayed, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three, three times. Mark records for us that Peter not only claimed that he'd be willing to lay his life down for the Lord, but Mark adds that Peter says, even though they all fall away, meaning all the rest of the disciples, I will not. I will lay down my life for you. See, Jesus had told them in Mark chapter 14 that when he was struck, they would all fall away and scatter. And Peter insisted that though that might be the case for the rest of the disciples, it would never be the case for him. And then in Mark 14, 30, Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. They might fall away, but I will never fall away. I will go to the end, Jesus. And here Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these? See, he's alluding to that moment when Peter boasted of his superior devotion to the Lord. That the Lord's prediction that they would all fall away might be true, the rest of the disciples, but never, never of him. He would never fail the Lord, and yet he did, just as the Lord predicted he would. This was the first connection or correction that needed to be made for Peter. Peter's denials, you see, of the Lord began with his pride. And Jesus gets to that pride in this question, do you love me more than these? One wonders if it was a sort of a test or maybe a chance for Peter to get it right this time. And he does get it right this time. Notice in Peter's response here, Peter doesn't go on elaborating about how much more he loves Jesus than the rest of them do. He simply says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And in a a sense, I love you, Lord, and you know the measure of my love. 
And Jesus responds with, feed my lambs. But he's not done with Peter yet. He asked Peter a second time, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says essentially the same thing as feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And then Jesus asks Peter for the third time. And John tells us when Peter asked Jesus, or Jesus asked Peter for the third time, when Jesus asked Peter for the third time, it grieves Peter. And why does it grieve Peter? It wasn't just because he had already asked him two other times and now Peter's at the point where he's thinking, oh, maybe Jesus doesn't believe me. He's asking the question because he doesn't believe my answer. No, he was grieved because he had denied the Lord three times. He had denied the Lord on the night of his crucifixion, or or the the night before his crucifixion, he had denied knowing him three times. And now the Lord has asked him the same question three times. Not, by the way, do you believe in me? Not, do you know me? But do you love me? Why not do you believe me? Do you know me? Because those things weren't in question. What Peter's denials called into question was not whether he knew the Lord or believed in the Lord. It called into question whether he loved the Lord. And now sitting next to this charcoal fire on the beach, the memory of it all floods back into Peter's mind. You know, by the way, it's interesting. A charcoal fire is only mentioned two times in all the Gospels, and both of them are in John. This is the second time. You see, it was only a matter of a couple weeks before when Peter had stood in the courtyard by a charcoal fire with soldiers and onlookers and servants of the temple guards, and he denied the Lord. Three times he denied the Lord. And now it's abundantly clear to Peter why the Lord is asking him this question The same question three times, once for every single time he denied him. Now, lest we think that Jesus was just trying to stick it to him or simply sting his already wounded conscience, notice what the Lord does every time. Peter affirms his love for Jesus, and each time Jesus responds with instructions, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my my lambs, tend my sheep, and feed my sheep. Essentially, care for Peter I have a job for you. You're to care for and lead my people. So it wasn't that Jesus' point was, you don't love me, look at how you failed me. No, rather it was in full recognition of his past failure. No question about that. In full recognition of his past failure, and even in light of it, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And then, okay, Peter, You do, then I want you to care for my sheep. We could think about it this way. For every time Peter spoke those terrible words of denial, the Lord here gives him opportunity to reaffirm his love. For every single time that he had spoken those terrible words, God is give the Lord Jesus Christ is giving Peter the opportunity to speak the truth and to affirm his love for the Lord. And then, not only that, but to hear him re-enlist him, as it were, into his service. Now, there was, of course, sting to it, right? Of course there was a sting to it. Coming to terms with our sin always comes with a sting. 
Jesus didn't just ignore what Peter did, pretending like nothing ever happened. No, there needed to be full recognition of his sin, full recognition of his failure. But with it was the call of Jesus to Peter to reaffirm his love for him and then receive the instruction of the Lord. Peter, you love me. Now your love for me will be displayed in how you care for my sheep. I have a job for you, Peter. I'm, I'm re-enlisting you in service. Now this is, this is amazing grace because Jesus could have forgiven Peter and then said, I forgive you, Peter, but I don't really have any use for you anymore, especially after what you did. I just, I can't trust you anymore. Go over there and try not to hurt yourself. But, but he doesn't. He restores Peter to ministry. And by the anointing of the Spirit, Peter goes on to serve the Lord and be one of the pillars of the early church. You see, Peter's story illustrates for us the amazing mercy and grace of our Savior. For any who have miserably failed the Lord, and we have all failed our Lord to one degree or another, but there are certain sins, and some of you may feel this way, there are certain sins that just stand out to you. For some, there might be an occasion where you failed your Savior, you failed Christ to such a degree that you wonder if you've, you could ever, ever be restored, maybe forgiven. But what about restored? What about restored to joyful fellowship with Christ? What about restored to being used by him again? What about restored to serving him in whatever station he has put you in to bear fruit in his kingdom? You see, the restoration of Peter proves to us that for those who humble themselves before the Lord, he's ready and willing not only to forgive, but to restore them to joyful fellowship. And not just joyful fellowship with the Lord, but fruitful service. Now look, there's even more grace to be seen here. Listen to what Peter, Jesus says to Peter next. Verse 18. You might wonder at this, but I'll explain it. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And then after this, he said to him, follow me. Now, I said you might wonder at this because, I mean, you might wonder why I said that there's more grace from our Savior here. How is there more grace from our Savior here? Jesus is telling Peter here about his death, and he's basically predicting, well, he is predicting, that in his old age, Peter would die for his Savior. You get that? He's telling Peter he's, gonna, he's going to die for him. Look with me back at John 13 again. He had said to Peter the night when he was betrayed and arrested, the night before, the day before he was crucified, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can, I, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Are you seeing the connections? Before the Lord's death, he had told Peter that he could not follow him at that time. And, that he, and he gave a prediction. He predicted that he was going to deny him. He said, you're going to deny me. But now, look. What's happened now? 
having been restored to fellowship with the Lord, what does Jesus say to Peter? He gives him another prediction. And this time, it's not you will deny me. This time it is, Peter, your hands will be stretched out as mine. That was an allusion to the cross. Peter was crucified, by the way. Your hands will be stretched out as mine were on the cross, and you will indeed lay down your life for me. So don't be afraid, Peter. Follow me. It might sound strange to us. This is probably the most marvelous thing Peter could have heard from his Lord. He had denied his Lord three times when it seemed like it mattered the most to him. And how could he be sure that he wasn't going to do it again? How did he know when it came down to it and he was in the same kind of place, same situation, he wouldn't buckle again? He loved the Lord. He had just confessed his love for the Lord three times. But would his love for the Lord stand the test of the trials ahead? And the answer that Jesus gives to Peter is, yes, it will. And yes, it did. By the grace of, of, of his Savior, it did. According to church tradition, Peter did die for his Savior. He died a martyr's death. He died for proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was crucified in Rome around 64 AD during the reign of Nero. And with his death, he glorified God and he honored his Savior. What a grace. What a grace bestowed upon this man. And you know, when you read 1 Peter, by the way, this is how he speaks. Read 1 Peter this week and just pay attention to the way Peter speaks about suffering for the Lord. That those who suffer for the Lord are privileged. They're blessed by God. And Peter knew it because Peter had been in the place where he could have suffered for the Lord, and he got out of that suffering by denying him. And then he realized. He realized what he had done. And here, Jesus gave him this wonderful prediction. No, you're going to have another chance, Peter. You're going to have another chance. And this time, you will be faithful. But by my sustaining grace, you will be faithful. Well, then we come to our last scene. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come to you, what is that to you? Well, good old Peter, he put his foot in his mouth one last time just for our sake, and we can thank him for it. And John's setting the record straight for us here on a rumor that had been spread about him, that had circulated in the church. And that rumor was that Jesus had told Peter that John wasn't going to die until Jesus came again. But that wasn't what Jesus said. That wasn't his point. And his, but his point was this. 
Peter asked Jesus about John, wanting Jesus to tell him what he had in store for the other disciple. And Jesus had told Peter, remember, he had just told Peter about his own death. And so now Peter's curious about what's going to become of John. And so Jesus tells Peter, he responds with what Peter really needed to hear. And it's what every disciple of Christ needs to occasionally hear. And that was, Peter, don't worry yourself about what I have planned for John or for Susie or for Mark or for Bill or for whoever it is. Your task, O oh disciple of Christ, is to follow me. Now, I'm glad, I'm glad Peter asked the question because I can see myself asking the very same question. I wonder if you can see yourself asking that question. I wonder if you have asked questions similar to that to the Lord. Maybe you have. You've looked around at a brother or sister in Christ and you've wondered why God has given them a blessing that he hasn't given to you or even why he's put a certain trial in their life. And the words of Christ come to us, what is that to you? You are to follow me. Though their path may be different, though we don't all serve in the same station, we don't face the same trials, we don't enjoy all the same gifts from above, his calling to each and every one of us is you follow me. It's a wonderful way to end the gospel. That personal exhortation to Peter from the Lord Jesus Christ, when Peter is easily distracted about other things, wondering about what's going to happen with John, Peter, Jesus just simply reiterates that command. Peter, follow me. Something that we need to hear regularly from the Lord. What concern is that to you? O oh son, O oh daughter in the faith, simply follow me. So then we come to the close of the final chapter, the final verses. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. A proper end to our study in the Gospel of John. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. May the Lord cause it to build our faith in our Savior as the eternal Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And may this word that has come from our Lord not return to him void, but accomplish in us that for which he intends and purposes to accomplish, that we shall be led in peace and go out in joy. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. As we close the books on our study of this gospel of John, Lord, I think of all the wonderful truths that we have heard and seen from it. I think of the way that we've seen Christ's glory displayed in both his words and his actions, in his miracles, in his instructions, in his responses to his disciples, and in his death and resurrection on our behalf. Lord, I pray as, as we end this series that you would take these last two years 
and you would cause all of the reading of your word and the teaching from your word to bear much fruit in our lives. And I can't help but think, Lord, of those who may have been here for some of this series who are still standing in doubt or in disbelief of the wonderful gospel message that forgiveness can be had. Forgiveness is extended to all who surrender their lives to the Savior and trust in Him. And I pray, Lord, that you would use your word in their lives, that you would open their eyes, that they would go away not disbelieving, but believing. I think of the story of Thomas that we read last week, Lord, of his ardent disbelief, of his refusal to believe in the resurrection that Jesus had really, truly risen from the grave and Jesus proved himself to him. Lord, I pray that you would do that in this season, even as Advent approaches and the celebration of the birth of your son happens in in our towns, in our cities, in our communities, Lord, and there are various opportunities that we have to to speak the truth to our friends and neighbors and family, Lord, I pray that you would prove yourself to them, that you would open their eyes, that they would see their Savior, not only the Savior who died for them, but the Savior who rose for them, that they might have life, everlasting life, enjoying joyful fellowship with you and being enlisted in your service, just as you enlisted Peter, Lord, that they would believe, they would read the story of Peter and see how great your forgiveness is. No matter what they've done in the past, you can cleanse them, you can restore them, and you can enlist them in your service to bear much fruit for your kingdom God, we pray that you would do these things for your glory. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and for all time. And amen.